Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the Leviathan. With me is Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is author of a number of books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and the book that will be the basis of our discussion today, Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. Pleasure to be with you again, Jeffrey. The term Leviathan is really introduced into Western culture through uh, the book of of Job in the Bible, is it not? Indeed, indeed. Um, In the book of Job, God depicts the Leviathan as uh, his intermediary and the greatest instrument of his power on the earth. In in effect... uh, something so terrible that even the the other Elohim, or one might say heavenly host, are, are, are terrified. Indeed. Um, God uh, says that the, the other gods, the Elohim, the other divine beings, are terrified when Leviathan rears up from out of the sea uh, with his uh, glowing eyes and his, um, you know, fire-breathing nostrils and so forth. This is a, a sea monster of some sort. Well, it's a very curious description because, on the one hand, it evokes a sea serpent or dragon, but uh, the description also has curiously mechanical qualities to it. Um, there are these shards underneath the Leviathan that are meant to be able to trudge through a swamp. And the way in which the interlocking of the scales is described in the book of Job uh, calls to mind a kind of uh, metallic or mechanical construction. And Thomas Hobbes, by the way, who, who uh, adopts the image of the Leviathan uh, in his classic political treatise, picks up on this um, mm. when he uh, describes the Leviathan as a kind of automaton. But we'll uh, come to that later mm-hmm. on in our discussion. But, but to be fair, as far as I know, in terms of biblical references, we don't hear much more about the Leviathan in the Bible. No, um, but it does become a subject of discussion for theologians, which I think um, is why Hobbes picks up on it and adopts it as a political metaphor. Mm-hmm. So, but w- what's the purpose of uh, the mention of the Leviathan in the book of Job? Why does it come up at all? As a demonstration of God's power. So we have to go into the, the uh, book of Job and, and um, look at what really the moral of this story is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the story really is about the most righteous man in the world of the time. Uh, Job is reputed to be uh, the most righteous man of his era. And, uh, you know, he's a good family man, depicted as a good family man who uh, gives generously of his wealth um, in particular, uh, when he offers sacrifices up to God. And so he's a very pious and, and charitable individual. And um, he's, he lives a blessed life. And Satan uh, appears in God's counsel and taunts the Lord, telling him that the only reason Job, uh, supposedly the most righteous man in the world, is so grateful to you is because you've blessed him with such a comfortable life. And if you were to make this man miserable, even he, even Job, the most righteous man, would curse you. And so, uh, in effect, Satan has God's ear here. 
Yeah, it's very peculiar. It's the first prominent role that Satan plays in the Bible. And um, it's worth noting that this text was, uh, as, as Thomas Hobbes also points out in his commentary on it in Leviathan, this text was likely written at the same time as the book of Esther, um, in other words, either during or after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, in other words, it was written under Iranian influence. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of Ahriman in Zoroastrianism, the idea of a, a antagonist uh, to God, um, is being introduced into Judaism during this period. And the first major appearance that Satan makes in the Bible is indeed in the book of Job. And he plays such a prominent role that he is in fact uh, basically um, coercing God to take a certain course of action that is uh, highly uh, unjust. In in fact, Carl Jung, in his book, Answer to Job, really accuses God of of being morally deficient. Yes. Well, what's what's actually going on here on a deeper level, I think, is that we're seeing a portrayal of the satanic as part of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the the mythical imagery of the uh, story, uh, Satan is depicted as an independent being taunting God in the uh, uh, assembly of the angels. Yep. But but really, on a metaphysical uh, and moral level, what's being said here is that the satanic is part of the nature of God. And that'll become clearer in the story yep. uh, as, as we lay out the plot. But it's very different, I should say, parenthetically from John Milton's description of Satan as, as a fallen angel who lives in hell. Uh Yes, um, that that's a very complex question uh, yeah. that you know that is it's outside the scope of this discussion. But <laughs> right. we've probably touched on it in a number of our other yeah. conversations. No, we're not going to have a, a conversation about Satan. It's about the Leviathan, who is presented, I think, by God in the Book of Job as being certainly more powerful than Satan. Yeah. So what happens is uh, Satan taunts God saying, look, if you take Job's wealth away from him and uh, destroy his comfortable life, he'll curse you. And so God does this. But Job still refuses to curse the Lord. He, he remains a righteous man. And so Satan ups the ante and says to the Lord, well, uh, you haven't afflicted his person yet. If you, if you afflict this man with disease and uh, deteriorate his body, surely he will... Um, lament of your injustice. And uh, so God does this, and, and Job winds up diseased and covered with boils, and nobody wants to go near him. He's sitting there scraping his skin off, and his wife says to him, you know, I mean, you're so pathetic and miserable, why don't you just put an end to it all? Uh, and Job doesn't at this point uh, curse God, but he begins to question God. He begins to question why a righteous man such as himself, who apparently has committed no sin, is suffering such terrible injustice. And at this point in the story, three of Job's friends show up to I mean, basically keep uh, company with him and commiserate with him. And these three friends of his start to engage in, I mean, proto-philosophical arguments to justify God's righteousness. They they basically take the position that, you know, God rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. And so Job must have committed some sin that he's unaware of mm. because, you know, God doesn't behave wickedly toward just men. And so so they're offering excuses for making excuses for God's behavior and trying to justify God's conduct in a, in a kind of rationalistic and moralistic way. Mm-hmm. 
And it's after this that God himself intervenes. God appears from out of a whirlwind, as he does on a number of occasions in the Tanakh, um, and uh, he addresses Job and says to him, basically, look, where were you when I created the world? Mm-hmm. Where were you when I put life on the earth? Um, and, uh, you know, in this boasting of his majestic power over the creation, uh, God says something really disturbing uh, from, from any moralist's point of view. He says to Job, have you an arm like mine? Uh, if you could seize by your right hand anything that you wished, even I would praise you. In other words, God is saying to Job that my power is its own justification. If you were as powerful as I am or more powerful, then, you know, you could uh, complain against me all you want. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that I'm in charge here. And your friends are wrong to think that I need some rational or moral justification for my actions. And this is where the image of the Leviathan enters the text, mm-hmm. where you know God is giving various examples of his creative power and his control over nature. And he says, you know, who can seize Leviathan by a fish hook? Uh, and he describes this uh, terrifying entity. I don't want to say beast, because as I mentioned, um, there are aspects to this description that evoke a mechanical contrivance. Mm-hmm. But he describes this thing that emerges from out of the depths of the sea. And it, it has qualities similar to a sea serpent or a dragon, uh, these tightly uh, interlocked scales that almost seem metallic and glowing eyes and, and smoking nostrils. And uh, it, it, it leaves white, um, uh, like, a, you know, co- contrails in the ocean, you know, what uh, waves behind itself as it rises up out of the ocean. And uh, there's this curious reference to how the the, the giants uh, uh, who are imprisoned under the ocean are, are terrified by it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this image of the Leviathan as the beast of God who humbles all proud uh, creatures and reminds them of their place in the creation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very powerful image of, of pure terror or pure force. Yes, and it's after this evocation of the Leviathan that Job uh, basically says to God, I stand corrected. Um, you know, uh, I was in no place to question you. I am but dust and ashes. Mm-hmm. And uh, when basically... Job has gotten the moral of the story. God restores all of his wealth and makes his life even more uh, blessed and comfortable than before. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I I think Carl Jung, in answer to Job, found that a very frustrating ending to the story. Well, it's profoundly disturbing mm-hmm. because, you see, uh, this is challenging the idea of a moral God. And what we have to remember is that in really archaic societies like Sumerian society, Babylonian, the archaic Greek society of the Homeric um, epics, there wasn't a moral god. The gods are immoral uh, or amoral. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really a question of uh, appealing to one or another god or goddess to protect yourself from the wrath or a, a sadistic manipulation of, of the others. And so, you know, the idea of the moral God really doesn't appear in human history until 
Zarathustra mm-hmm. and his Gathas, and this conception of Ahura Mazda as an absolutely good god whose actions are not only moral, but require rational justification. Ahura Mazda, the lord of wisdom, is um, portrayed in the Gathas of Zarathustra as a supreme intelligence whose whose actions are always rational mm-hmm. and who could, if pressed, offer justification for his actions. But who is opposed by a uh, a cosmic counterforce in, in the form of Ahriman. Exactly. And so... What is going on in the book of Job is a questioning of the idea of the moral God, mm-hmm. which has only just appeared in human history shortly before this text was probably composed. Um, this text was composed during the Achaemenid uh, Persian Empire. And it's under Iranian influence that the idea of a moral God begins to diffuse through this vast cosmopolitan sphere ruled by the Persians. Uh, and here in Job, you see a response to it where whoever authored this text is making the point that God need not offer moral justification for his actions, that uh, the power of a sovereign is its own justification, and that actually what Zoroastrians think of as the satanic, as an evil counterforce, is part of the Godhead itself. Mm-hmm. Which I think is, uh, at least in part, the argument I keep referring back to Carl Jung, and I know he's not really relevant to our discussion, except, you know, he he does engage dramatically with the book of Job in in, uh, kind of a contrary way. Uh, Jung is saying we have to enlarge our concept of the Godhead, that the Judeo-Christian Godhead itself is deficient for the needs of a civilization. That's true. And let me just, uh, just make a note here that although in Iranian Leviathan, I never mentioned Carl Jung, mm-hmm. Jung's idea of a kind of return of the repressed, um, from out of the collective unconscious is central to what I'm trying to accomplish mm-hmm. with this text. Mm-hmm. And I was very much conscious of it when I wrote this book, yeah. although I never explicitly engaged with Jung. Mm-hmm. So, so we see in Job, in effect, that God has a creature uh, that uh, acts in, in his behalf, does the will of God, and frightens other people, even the other Elohim or heavenly hosts, when necessary. And now Thomas Hobbes, in the, uh, much, much later in, in history, in the, uh, I guess it would be early 17th century or so, uh, or 16th, I'm not quite sure. Uh, early take, 17th. Early 17th century takes up the uh, notion of the Leviathan in his famous political treatise. That's right. Hobbes mentions the Leviathan on three occasions in the book by that name, which is interesting. It's only three occasions. It's a thick book. Yeah. And he only mentions the Leviathan explicitly three times. And uh, the first time that he does so, it's in the opening paragraph of the book. And He's picking up on these um, mechanical qualities to the description of the Leviathan in the book of Job. And um, he identifies the Leviathan as uh, a, a mechanism, an automaton. He even says an artificial life form. And this is the state, the state mm-hmm. as an artificial life form. Um, and see, Hobbes was a contemporary of Descartes, and uh, he exchanged... 
um, well, he didn't exchange uh, letters necessarily with Descartes, but what happened was uh, Descartes' publicist, Marin Mersenne, a, a Jesuit, um, who we've talked about long ago in one of our conversations, recall, you know, yes. as, as Descartes' publicist and a man connected with the Jesuit Inquisition and mm -hmm. so forth. Marin Mersenne asked Hobbes to do a review of Descartes' writings, and Descartes published his replies to this. So they were in a kind of communication with each other. And, you know, Descartes is the, the uh, thinker most famous for developing the conception of the human body as a uh, mechanism mm -hmm. with uh, the, the mind as a kind of ghost in the machine. So Hobbes is taking this metaphor to a social level where he's conceiving of the state as an automaton mm -hmm. with the sovereign as the soul ensconced in the machinery of the state. The, in other words, the king when you say the sovereign. Yes, although it, you know, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, Hobbes' Leviathan, as we're going to discuss, is an argument for absolute monarchy. But to call it a, an argument for absolute sovereignty or for, for strong sovereignty is really more accurate because that sovereign doesn't necessarily have to have the title of a king or the crown of a king on his head. It's a question of form, uh, the, the political form mm. that, that we're, um, that we're, um, analyzing here. Yeah. So, but the, uh, the description of the Leviathan uh, in the opening of the book is interesting because effectively Hobbes is arguing that the state is a form of technology. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, well, since it's man-made, makes sense. Yeah. And uh, then the second occasion that the Leviathan comes up is in the context of uh, fleshing out this idea of the social contract where, um, you know, People surrender their individual will and their prerogative in the state of nature uh, to a state that they form collectively that will provide them with safety and security. And in this context, the Leviathan is described as uh, the unitary person of the sovereign, where a plurality of individuals are constituting a single sovereign body. And uh, Hobbes had the frontispiece for the first editions of Leviathan drawn in his own lifetime. Um, and the, the drawing basically depicts the uh, head of a sovereign emerging from out of shoulders and a neck constituted by a plurality of individuals, mm -hmm. which is an image that goes all the way back to Plato's Republic, the state as a single man. Yeah. And um, Hobbes is very serious uh, when he uses this image. It's so serious that, in fact, he goes into a peculiar discussion of bees and ants as creatures who have a hive mind, creatures who, on account of their instinct, uh, don't have any conflict between their personal will and their collective will. In other words, the, the personal will of, of, a, of an ant or a bee is identical with the collective will and secures the collective welfare on account of their instinct. Uh -huh. And he distinguishes human nature from this kind of nature and uh, argues that since in human nature... Uh, men are like wolves that, you know, they prey on the weak and then these wolves will turn on each other as well in the end. Um, a state is required to keep people in check and uh, provide uh, the conditions for the rise of art and culture uh, that without a state, commerce and industry would be impossible. And as he puts it, uh, human life would be short, uh, nasty and brutish. Now, Solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. 
We've talked about Carl Jung, and you brought up the concept of the return of the repressed, but as I recall, that concept really goes back to Freud, and Freud addressed this same issue uh, in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, in which he points out that uh, because we are civilized, we we repress all of the so-called uncivilized parts of our psyche, our aggressive and lustful urges. That's the Freudian unconscious right right there. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, Freud is talking about that on an individual level in terms right. of the individual human psyche. And yeah. Hobbes' concern is with creating a functional society. Right. Yeah. And so the third... Um, uh, instance of Leviathan, uh, the, the image of the Leviathan uh, being cited by Hobbes in his text, is Leviathan as a mortal god. He says, a mortal god who humbles all proud beasts on the earth. And by this, he, he means to get at the idea that the Leviathan, namely the sovereign, is God's viceroy or, or God's uh, agency on the earth. Mm-hmm. And this gets us into long parts of this text where Hobbes is arguing that the church or religion has to be um, totally integrated with state power so that there can't be any religious authority that competes for people's loyalty, that competes with the sovereign for people's loyalty. Um, and, you know, Hobbes uh, critiques the idea that uh, miracles can take place in the present time, that uh, prophets can come forth with new religious revelations. He claims that all of these things happened only in the past, that, um, you know, uh, it was God's special dispensation that the disciples of Christ could perform miracles that they don't take place anymore. And to the extent that uh, that any miracle would take place, only the, the state-approved church would validate that. And the state is also uh, the one that determines how religious scripture is interpreted and what counts for canonical revelation. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that although th- this, this sounds very, uh, how can I put it, backwards to a modern reader, Hobbes makes a very good point when he points out that uh, advocates of freedom of religion in, in a more uh, liberal democratic state um, neglect the fact that there can be religions that fundamentally conflict with the constitution of the state. You can have religious doctrines that call for a course of conduct from a private citizen that bring that citizen to a place where they are violating the the law, the civil laws. Mm-hmm. And, and so not just any religion uh, can be um, tolerated by right. the state. I mean, we've had that issue uh, come up in the United States with regard to the Native American church and its advocacy of peyote rituals or the uh, uh, Santo Daime church that advocates the uh, sacramental use of ayahuasca. Yes, and, you know, to to uh, take a, more of Hobbes' cynical approach, I think he would be appalled to see how freedom of religion in his own native country was being used to turn a blind eye to the rise of Sharia courts in various suburbs of London and Manchester and other 
British cities. Mm-hmm. Well, there could be a- any number of examples of uh, a religion that uh, might choose to undermine the authority of a monarch. Right. And so Hobbes, I think, is being very clear-eyed, very sober in his assessment of this danger and making the point basically that uh, to the extent that religion is a powerful force in society, mm-hmm. the state must take control of it and it cannot compete for the loyalty of citizens. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's fair to assume that, you, as you mentioned early, Hobbes was a cynic. Uh, and maybe not in the philosophical sense, but cynical toward religion itself. Yeah, in his discussions of, of miracles and revelation, um, and particularly when he talks about how there are no demons and how the, the, the uh, profession of demonology, which was alive and well in his own time, let's not forget that the Salem witch trials were taking place round about then. Mm-hmm. And so you know, people were still being burned at the stake as, as sorcerers and witches. Uh, his critique of the claim that certain people had demonic power uh, shows that he really is a is a materialist and a rationalist mm-hmm. who's only concerned with religious scripture because he wants to make sure that um, the church and uh, the religious forces in society are under the control of the state. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, social milieu in which Hobbes wrote. Uh, uh, it was around the time of uh, the, the Civil War in England. It was during the Civil War in England. Mm-hmm. And so so basically, you know, uh, Hobbes was exiled with a, with a, a bunch of monarchists in Paris, mm-hmm. where he becomes actually the tutor to the Prince of Wales in the 1640s. Mm-hmm. And so he's writing this uh, argument for absolute monarchy um, during the English Civil War, during the, the basically collapse and disintegration of the British state. And so that's a huge motivating factor for him in his argument for strong sovereign mm-hmm. authority. Also, there was a foreign threat from the Spaniards. Um, Hobbes, when he was born in um, 1588, uh, he, he says that uh, you know his mother's... Uh, labor was induced by fear that the Spanish Armada was headed for London. And uh, so, you know, he makes this joke that uh, my mother gave birth to twins, myself and fear, mm-hmm. which is very appropriate in terms of the, the atmosphere of his work, of mm-hmm. his writing. Well, you know, when I grew up in uh, grade school, even, I think Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan was mentioned. But the, the point of it being that uh, Leviathan was... Uh, symbolic not of uh, God and the power of God, but the uh, symbolic of human nature itself, that at, at heart we are monstrous beings with all sorts of aggressive and uh, sexual urges. We're, we're beasts ourselves, and that's why we need a social contract. Yeah, and, you know, Hobbes recognizes that some people may think this is an overly cynical view of human nature. He addresses it in the text, Mm -hmm. and he says, you know, to those who think that uh, I'm taking too dark a view of uh, human nature, let them consider to themselves why, when they travel, they always travel armed, why they lock the doors to their houses if they trust their neighbors so much, why, when they're inside their locked homes, they lock all their cupboards and their, their, their private cabinets uh, so that their servants and their children won't get into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in other words, he, he asks his credit, uh, critics to really examine their own conduct and, and uh, disillusion themselves um, as to what kind of view they really have of their own fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Hobbes is really writing as a political theorist. Sure. He is arguing for absolute monarchy, a kind of monarchy that uh, derives its authority from uh, the notion that it is uh, endowed or blessed by the deity, the supreme deity. It is, in a sense, an argument for the divine right of kings, although that's going to be really problematic. I want to come ultimately around to the question of why that's problematic and whether this argument really succeeds as an argument for the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is, in some ways, I think, a very compelling, a shockingly compelling argument, considering the fact that, I mean, liberal democracy is almost unquestioned in our world. If you look at the actual argument that Hobbes lays out, Hobbes lays out for a a strong monarchy, Mm -hmm. uh, it's... Interesting. I mean, he has some very strong points that he makes. So the way this argument is structured, it's, it's very elegant. First, it begins with an argument that a government is needed at all. Mm. And this is the argument that the state of nature is a state of war. Not meaning that there's perpetual warfare, but state of war in the sense that the storm clouds of war are always gathering. You know, it's it's a state of war in the sense of inclement weather that at any moment, you know, thund- the thunder and lightning of conflict could break out. Mm-hmm. And in this state of instability, you know, uh, art and culture, high culture and industry and commerce are impossible and people live these miserably impoverished and uh, almost subhuman lives. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, some kind of government is necessary. Then he lays out the only three types of government that he thinks actually exist. Democracy, aristocracy, and monarchy. Mm. And uh, he argues that people like Plato and Aristotle are making a mistake when they claim that there are other forms of government, like like democracy, like oligarchy, tyranny. He says that these are actually uh, terms for the same forms of government applied to those governments by critics of them. In other words, a, a proponent of democracy will tend to see a monarchy as a tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's say an aristocrat will argue that a democracy is really an, an anarchy. And uh, a democrat might see a, an aristocratic political system as an oligarchy. Mm-hmm. Actually, a, a advocate of monarchy might say the same thing. An advocate of monarchy might also try to justify the rule of one sovereign by saying that aristocrats are actually corrupt oligarchs and mm-hmm. that, you know, one uh, just sovereign needs to clean house. Yeah. So he lays out these three forms of uh, government and then he makes an argument for monarchy. And he, he pursues basically six lines of, of uh, argumentation in favor of monarchy. And I, I suppose the obvious one is uh, that if you have a single monarch, well, there's fewer people to be corrupted. Yeah. Um, he, he claims that the multiplication of, of sovereigns or the division of the sovereign power so that it's vested in, in all of the members of either an aristocratic or an even larger democratic assembly just means that you're multiplying corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, because any one of these people who shares in constituting the sovereign power can be corrupt. Mm-hmm. And uh, insofar as the the king and the royal family are vulnerable to nepotism, well, so are the members of a Congress who may act not in the interests of the people or the state, but to enrich their own families. Mm-hmm. So the multiplication of sovereigns or the division of sovereign power is only a uh, multiplication of corruption. And he makes the, to me, very convincing point that no king wants to govern a uh, poor and downtrodden people. Um, 
any king will see the thriving of his nation and the wealth of his people as uh, something that honors him. It, it, it will make, it will reflect well on the king to be the king of a wealthy, prosperous, and flourishing people. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make any sense for the king to uh, nepotistically enrich himself and his family at the terrible expense of the state and the people. Mm -hmm. Only the mild expense of the state and the people. Well, after all, you know, he has a serious responsibility on his shoulders. Yeah, and and I suppose it, it would be assumed that the king should be the wealthiest of all the wealthy people. Uh, one might make an argument for that simply in terms of threats to the throne, because if anyone outside of the, of the ruling authority were to amass a tremendous amount of wealth, that would represent a kind of national security threat. Mm. But that, yet there's a whole, uh, complex discussion on yeah. the side that we could have. So, so Hobbes lays out all of these arguments, uh, in favor yeah. of, of what he calls a monarchy, monarchy by which he doesn't mean the constitutional monarchy. He means uh, more of what we think of as a pure monarch. Yeah, Hobbes thinks that constitutional monarchy is a profoundly confused notion, that uh, th there really is no such thing as a constitutional monarchy. Um, it, by constitutional monarchy, people usually either mean a, an aristocracy of some kind or a democracy. Mm -hmm. So you can have an aristocracy where um, basically the monarch is like a chairman who can be removed by the other aristocrats if they disapprove of his conduct in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that shows that actually it's the group of aristocrats that are vested with the sovereign power, not yeah. the monarch. Mm -hmm. And um, even more so in the case of a democratic assembly, like the parliamentary monarchies of our time, uh, if, if the entire democratically elected assembly, the parliament, can remove a monarch, that means the sovereignty is really vested in the people mm -hmm. and that they just have a nostalgic kind of cultural attachment to the idea of the monarchs of the past. Yeah. And they, they can't seem to part with this king as a symbol, but they might as well really just establish a democratic republic. So it sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, Hobbes is relatively insensitive to the many nuances that might exist between different forms of government. I don't know that he's insensitive. I think, I think he's, he's very sharp in his critiques of them. Um, but, uh, to go back to the six, uh, lines of argument that he pursues for, for absolute monarchy, mm -hmm. the second one, uh, it has to do with the, advisement that a king benefits from when he makes his decisions. Mm -hmm. And Hobbes points out that, you know, a monarch can privately take counsel from anyone that he wants mm -hmm. in order to come to the best decision possible on a matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and he can do so in secrecy long in advance of having to make a decision, let's say to go to war or to enact some controversial reform policy in the state. Mm -hmm. Whereas in an aristocracy or a democracy, uh, the people who can advise the sovereign are, um, are vetted by certain criteria that have to be accepted by everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, Congress isn't just going to let anyone advise the president. If it leaks out that certain people are advising the president and he's taking pol major policy decisions based on that advice and Congress doesn't approve of uh, the particular individual who happens to be doing this, or it's scandalous in some way that this individual is advising the sovereign, then that's going to interfere with the sovereign getting the best advice he possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, when uh, the sovereign 
has to share power with an assembly or is answerable to an assembly, it also leaks what kind of advice he's getting from whom. And this can also cause a scandal before he's had time to privately, uh, you know, contemplatively deliberate uh, based on the advice he's received from a certain person. And, you know, uh, in a monarchy, a sovereign could choose to be advised by people with completely opposite views on a matter without mm-hmm. either of them knowing that the other one is also advising the king. Mm-hmm. So Hobbes thinks that... Um, you know, the most well-advised decisions can be made in a monarchical system. Now, Hobbes's uh, writings were, I gather, relatively influential. Uh, yes, uh, I think they were, although I think they were more influential um, uh, on critics of Hobbes who developed liberal democratic social contract yeah. theories. I mean, I, I presume, as we've discussed earlier, that uh, many of the founding fathers, the authors of the American Constitution, would have been familiar with Hobbes' writing. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin would have been familiar with Hobbes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I presume also they probably rejected his strongly pessimistic view of human nature. Yeah, although if they were alive today to see, you know, how badly our Congress is corrupted by special interests and so forth, mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether, you know, they might have reconsidered yeah. their reading of Hobbes. So, so for example, the third line of argument that Hobbes pursues uh, has to do with um, the assembly being corrupted by special interests. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, he says, yes, it's true that a king uh, can make bad decisions because he's surrounded by flatterers, mm-hmm. what he calls flatterers, uh, people who have uh, certain special interests um, and they have an undue influence over the monarch. And they're basically, you know, kissing up to the king to, to, to move the king to make certain decisions. And Hobbes makes the point that you only have a multipl- multiplication of flatterers in an assembly because each one of these people, either in an aristocratic assembly or in a democratic assembly, have their own flatterers mm-hmm. surrounding them and trying to, to get them to make certain decisions that are not really in the interest of the people. And I think you, you really see this today in terms of the lobbying power of, say, pharmaceutical companies or the special interests of oil companies interfering with uh, decisions made by Congress that are really not in the interest of, say, the American people, to mm-hmm. take the case of the United States. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one, one could extrapolate from, uh, Hobbes' work, The Leviathan, to suggest, uh, just the opposite of what the founding fathers wanted, which is an absolute monarch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, an- another situation that I see in the United States that's relevant to, to Hobbes' argument, um, uh, to the fourth line of argument that he, um, lays out in Leviathan, is that long-term policymaking requires uh, something like a monarch. Yeah. Uh, we saw in the 1970s how the Apollo program and the ambition for the colonization of the moon and America's expansion into space was ultimately defunded mm-hmm. by Congress. Mm-hmm. And, and I, th- I think that's a catastrophe, frankly. Uh, I think it was a catastrophe for humanity in general to have given up on that aspiration mm-hmm. and just to think where we could be right now. Uh, as a species, if that project had been pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, a more recent example would be, let's say, the Obama healthcare program. I mean, 
Uh, you could be for or against that. I'm not taking a position on it necessarily. But to the extent that people make the argument that healthcare is a universal human right, this is a fundamental policy decision. Yeah. And to have established a universal healthcare program in a country of the size of the United States, and then to have it questioned by Congress only four years later is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. And Hobbes points to this in Leviathan and says that uh, assemblies are prone to completely reversing their decisions after a certain number of years once the representatives change. And so, It's only in monarchy that you have effective long-term Mm decision-making. It seems as if the ancient uh, emperors, the earliest Persian emperors, had a long-term project uh, that took uh, several monarchs to complete to rebuild the uh, temple in Jerusalem. Exactly. That had never happened under a Greek democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, the the fifth uh, line of argument that Hobbes pursues is I think very closely related to this issue of long-term policymaking. And that's that an assembly can disagree with itself so violently that there can ultimately be an outbreak of civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a very live question uh, today, I think, in, in terms of uh, uh, change of regime in a place like Iran, where you have um, various... Uh, Ethnic groups, uh, let's say, tribes and so forth, who are agitating for secession and independence. And um, if we had a pure democracy in Iran, uh, a, a parliament that were elected by the people, you would have various factions engaged uh, in really bitter disputes with one another and the danger mm-hmm. of the implosion of the state. And that's certainly a danger that Hobbes was confronted with in, in England of his time when he was writing Leviathan. He witnessed the disintegration of the or the the uh, descent of the British state into s- civil war. And, and you can look all over the world at various uh, legislative bodies and see fistfights breaking out. Yes, yes. But it's much more dangerous in a country uh, where there's a prospect of what we call now balkanization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it balkanization after the example of the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Hobbes has this in mind when he says that assemblies, you know, are prone to such violent disagreements that violent internal inconsistencies that it can result in civil war, but there's only as much inconsistency in the sovereign as there is indecisiveness in any single human being. Mm-hmm. And however much that is, it's less than you're going to find in an assembly. Yeah. Um, and so that's the fifth argument he gives. And then, you know, there's um, uh, one more uh, argument that he gives uh, you know, for, for, uh, an absolute, uh, monarchy, um, beyond that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm under the impression, Jason, that in many ways you're quite favorably disposed to Hobbes' notion. Um, I think that it's shocking how convincing some of these arguments are given how unquestioned liberal democratic political structures have become in our time, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that such a system would be remotely conceivable for just any country uh, or, 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 you know, any society in the world. Mm-hmm. But there are certain countries that have a strong tradition of monarchy uh, and uh, have a, a concrete uh, sociopolitical situation where a stronger sovereign authority would benefit them more than a weak sovereign authority. And one of those is, is certainly Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I gather you're critical of Hobbes in, in some ways. 
Yes. So, uh, you know, I think that insofar as Hobbes is trying to make an argument for the divine right of kings, the cynicism with which he approaches the subject of religion exposes a kind of hypocrisy in his argument. Um, Hobbes thinks that people uh, only enter into the social con uh, contract to constitute the state out of a fear for their lives and a fear of suffering violence. And, um, you know, that's really not the attitude that someone has toward what they hold sacred. Mm -hmm. So there, there's an Italian uh, postmodern philosopher uh, called Giorgio Agamben who's written a book by the name Homo Sacer, where he, he looks at the sacred nature of sovereign power. And uh, in particular, he references an archaic Roman law um, uh, that has to do with a person who is, on the one hand, decreed as the most contaminated and contaminating individual in society, um, to the point where he's ostracized and denied protection by the law. He's denied the protection of the law. And anyone can kill this person with impunity. On the other hand, uh, such a person, the homo sacer, the sacred man, cannot be sacrificed. And, and this shows how archaic the particular Roman law in question is, because it clearly dates from a time when there was human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So this person cannot be ritually sacrificed because he's holy. Uh, but he can be killed with impunity by anybody. And it points to the ambiguity of the sacred, which um, on the one hand is seen as uh, untouchable, something you don't want to be near or around because it's terrifying and it could destroy you. And on the other hand, it's what is most worthy of reverence. And the, the sovereign, uh, the, you know, in, in, uh, in the most primordial form of monarchy has this, um, sacred aura to him, uh, where the people who respect that sovereign and enthrone that sovereign are more than willing to give their lives for uh, the person that they perceive uh, to be surrounded by a divine light or aura. There's this notion of, of Leviathan here, the beast, that represents both the dark side of each and every human being and the idea that the state itself, in order to uh, function effectively as a suppressor of uh, the animal nature in humans, takes on a, a, a frightening aspect, an animal, uh, terrible aspect of, of like Leviathan, a beast, a monster itself. Absolutely. And Agamben in Homo Sacer um, shows how in the Germanic law of the Middle Ages, Germanic and Anglo-Saxon law, this figure that the Romans, the, ancient, the archaic Romans referred to as Homo Sacer, reemerges as the wolfman, the werewolf, or the person represented by a Wolfshäut, the wolf's head. Um, and he, he says that... Uh, Basically, what these Germanic and, and you know, Anglo-Saxon theoreticians of sovereign power are recognizing is that the man as wolf in the state of nature is preserved in the person of the sovereign. So the state of nature remains at the heart of civil society in the person of the sovereign. The sovereign is still embodying that wolfish nature of man that has been exercised from society through the creation of the state apparatus. Mm. 
And um, one of the things that uh, this highlights is the fragility of state power. You know, people who emphasize the, the rule of law, you know, where there must be rule of law, the Constitution is all important, they don't understand that the state of nature is not something in the past. The Hobbesian state of nature is the chaos that is always in danger of welling up from the, the depths of the human psyche. And so the state of nature is just as much a failed state. It's what happens when a, a state collapses or disintegrates or implodes. You return to the state of nature uh, in that condition. And, you know, Hobbes controversially says that uh, in, in that state, there is no crime. There's crime only where there's law. So when a state has failed, just as much in a state of nature, there's no crime. And the sovereign, who is this, this wolf man, the werewolf, uh, at the center of the state apparatus has to constantly reconstitute the law through his sovereign decisions. This becomes most clear in a state of emergency where the constitution has to be suspended. You know, whether it's a natural catastrophe like an earthquake or hurricane, like Katrina, for example, mm. or whether it's in the context of a war or uh, an attempted revolution. In any case, there are times when the sovereign power suspends the constitution and the law is not functionally operative, but there is order. Order is maintained through sovereign decision. And what that reveals is actually that the sovereign is still perpetrating the kind of violence that exists in the state of nature as the man who is also a wolf. Mm. And so, you know, it's not this uh, abstract, rational edifice of law that really maintains the state. It's actually the sovereign whose power maintains the state on a continual basis. Mm -hmm. Well, I gather, though, that in your view personally of uh, what sovereignty means, uh, the, that to be uh, a materialist uh, such as Hobbes appears to have been, in spite of his biblical references, is insufficient. It doesn't adequately... Uh, address or encounter human nature as it really is. Well, you're bringing us back to the question of the divine right of kings, which is, which is, you know, uh, why I brought up this question of the, the wolf's head. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in the sacred, uh, kingship tradition of Iran, mm -hmm. uh, there is this idea, uh, well, there, there are two very closely related concepts, Fadikiani royal glory and Fadik Izadi or divine glory. Mm -hmm. And these are both uh, symbolized by halos, the halos around the heads of kings and prophets, mm -hmm. which not incidentally is an artistic tradition that uh, emanated from Iran and diffused um, uh, through the, the Iranian spread of Buddhism along the Silk Route into the East mm -hmm. and became something you see in Buddhist art. And it diffused through the Mithraic uh, influence on the Roman Empire into the West, mm -hmm. where it became a feature of medieval mm -hmm. European art. So the halo around the head of a king, in the case of Fadikiani, royal glory, or around the head of a prophet, Fadiizadi, or, or uh, divine glory, is, is the idea that... Um, in primordial times, uh, sovereign power was constituted on account of the charisma of a heroic leader. Mm -hmm. And 
it was almost a light or an aura that people could perceive in a man who had the capacity to provide guidance to a society who really played what you could say as a shamanic role. A man who was a shaman of that society. And it could have been a shaman who played more of a religious guidance role, in which case we're talking about Fata Izadi. Or it could have been a heroic leader, like, you know, in the most primitive form, the leader of a hunt, of a gigantic hunting expedition. Um, and, you know, the Iranian culture was a hunting culture. There are all kinds of carvings depicting royal hunts throughout Iranian history. Or the leader of a, of a war expedition. In any case, it was the charisma of such a person that was the first basis for sovereign legitimacy. Uh, in his writings on the nature of charisma and the role that it plays in society, Max Weber really points out the uh, charismatic basis of the earliest forms of sovereign power. And so I think when Hobbes is critiquing the occult in Leviathan, when he's dismissing the demonic, when he's dismissing the possibility that people could perform miracles today or that there could be new divine revelations, the, the degree of, of cynicism and skepticism involved there is such that it undermines the notion of divine royal glory that's at, really at the basis of the divine right of kings. And in the Iranian tradition, you know, uh, contrary to what some have argued, the greatest sovereigns were the ones who had both Fara'izadi and Fara'kioni. So, for example, Cyrus the Great, who was hailed as a messiah by the Jews, by people who weren't even Iranians. Uh, Cyrus the Great is, is someone who had both this uh, spiritual shamanistic aura to him and also the charisma of a political, great political leader. And then, you know, you see this uh, repeatedly throughout Iranian history in terms of someone like Hassan Asabba, the leader of the Order of Assassins, who combined Fata Izadi and Fata Kiyani, and Shah Esmail Safavid, the founder of the Safavid dynasty, who after a hiatus of hundreds and hundreds of years, reconstituted a distinct Iranian state. Mm -hmm. The man was the leader of a Sufi order, yeah. uh, who... who um, had absolute devotion from his followers in the capacity of a peer or morshid, a, a Sufi leader, and subsequently was able to gain political power on the basis of uh, the spiritual devotion of his followers. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose Ayatollah Khomeini was also uh, in that category. Well, this is a really uh, you know fascinating and controversial question because you know one would tend to see. Uh, the late Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, as somebody who's closer to, you know, Hobbes's conception of, of an absolute sovereign. And during the period when he was enacting these dramatic reforms that he called the White Revolution from 1963 onwards, uh, the Shah was criticized uh, by particularly, you know, Western journalists for exercising absolute authority. Uh, to some extent, in contravention of the Iranian constitution, there had been a constitutionalist revolution in Iran in 1906, mm -hmm. and it had established a parliament and and restricted the uh, the king's power, put limits on on royal authority, executive authority, um, and designated certain uh, responsibilities for parliaments and so forth. And so the Shah was criticized uh, for undermining the um, parliamentary uh, form of of the constitution. And initially, he used to appeal to uh, Iranian traditions of sacred kingship to justify his actions. He would say, look, uh, you know, 
democracy is not an Iranian tradition. I'm not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a 2,500-year-old tradition of monarchy in this country. I mean, he held the 2,500th anniversary mm-hmm. of the Persian Empire uh, in 1971, where he ad- addressed the departed spirit of Cyrus the Great and said, you know, sleep soundly, for we are vigilantly awake. Mm-hmm. Uh, sleep, Cyrus, for, you know, basically, I'm here keeping your flame alive. Mm-hmm. Famous and, last words. Famous last <laughs> words. And why were they famous last words? Because this same uh, monarch who was justifying some very constructive reform policies by appealing to the sacred Iranian tradition of kingship, wound up by 1977-78 giving interviews with Western journalists where he, uh, he, he boasted of um, liberalizing the press, of, of uh, authorizing a free press in Iran, a free all kinds of political prisoners from extreme Marxist uh, uh, and Maoist parties and uh, Islamic fundamentalists and um, promised to turn Iran into a democracy comparable to France. In other words, that Iran was going to become such a uh, parliamentary uh, monarchy, such a constitutional monarchy, that it would be as liberal democratic as France or Britain. Mm. Uh, so he really changed his position on this in the course of the 1970s. Yep. And, you know, one, one has to wonder why. I mean, was it partly because the man was seriously ill? I mean, he, he had, uh, you know, a really wasting cancer by the late mm. 1970s, and he was under constant medical treatment. Who knows why he... He made this decision, but it ultimately led to the unraveling of the Iranian state mm-hmm. and um, Ayatollah Khomeini's successful seizure of power, to go back to your question. Uh, and so, you know, it may be very troubling for Iranian monarchists to hear this, but if you actually look at the way that Ayatollah Khomeini governed, first of all, if you look at the way he rose to power, how these millions of people in Iran welcomed him as a charismatic leader, the kind of spiritual legitimacy that the man had, and then the way in which he effectively exercised sovereign power for, you know, the nine years that he was in control of Iran, he actually fits the image of a Hobbesian uh, absolute monarch more than Mohammad Reza Pahlavi does. Mm. And he is a person who, if you analyze him in terms of uh, Iranian political concepts like Fadi Zadi and Fadi arguably had both Fadi Zadi and Fadi the way that Shah Ismail Safavid did. People are used to thinking of Ayatollah Khomeini as an Islamic fundamentalist. Certainly he was surrounded by many Islamic fundamentalists, many Islamists, people who, who even wanted to go to the extent of uh, taking bulldozers and demolishing ancient Persian ruins, and people who wanted to get rid of the Iranian flag altogether and replace it with some kind of Islamist. But you know what? Those things didn't happen. They didn't happen. And if you look at Khomeini's life, this was not a man who was drawn toward legalism. His uh, course of study as a Shia theologian, was mostly inclined toward philosophy and mysticism. He's a man who, who in his theological seminary years in Qom, and then later in Iraq, in Najaf, uh, was studying um, uh, both Greek philosophy and medieval Iranian philosophers like Farabi, who elaborately laid out the theory of sacred kingship. And so, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, was well-versed in, in Sufi and uh, esoteric Shia philosophy. Mm-hmm. 
And I think we need to bear that in mind when we compare the the um, manner in which he governed on the one hand and the manner in which Mohammad Reza Pahlavi governed on the other to the kind of image of the um, monarch that we find in Hobbes' Leviathan, particularly with a view to the fact that the Hobbesian sovereign is the representative of God on earth. Mm-hmm. So you're suggesting that Khomeini came closer to that ideal. I think that it's very important when we when we think about um, societies in a philosophical way and and uh, analyze governments to separate form from content. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, Islamist content in the in the um, governing ideology of the Islamic Republic of Iran, mm-hmm. but the political form of the Islamic Republic of Iran is closer to the traditional Iranian conception of monarchy than even the state governed by the Pahlavis, the state that had its origins in the Constitutional Revolution of 1906. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, a fascinating discussion, a complex discussion. I think uh, a number of our viewers are going to be scratching their heads uh, because there are many nuances uh, here, but I think those nuances actually uh, are a reflection of your own deeper thoughts about these issues. I think so, Jeffrey. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you for being with me and for coming to Albuquerque, Jason. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm.